And uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Bethany here at Green Lake and also online. We're honored that you'd worship with us this morning, this beautiful day. It's good to come in and listen to what God has to say to us. We're continuing a series looking at parables, and today we're looking at maybe one of the best-known parables in all the Bible, the parable of the prodigal son. But I've titled it the prodigal with a question mark because prodigal, or the word prodigious, means excess. So at the end, you decide. Prodigal son? Prodigal God? Prodigal older brother? Or D, all of the above? We'll just look at that together. And to help you this morning, because I know uh, you're eager to get outside, there's a fill-in-the-blank outline. I don't do this often, but sometimes I do. And if you, if you get all the answers right, I'm in the back checking, 9% tithe next week, right? So you get to give a little bit. No, I'm just kidding, of course. But my desire is that uh, you would, with me, come to see a lavish uh, love given to us by our Creator, unlike any human analogy. And it's toward that end that we look at this text together. So let's begin. It's, what, it's a well-known parable and vital to see that there are many people involved in institutional religion who are unwilling to come to the party because they've never moved from a performance-based religion to receiving as the base of relationship. In other words, even within the, like I say, even within the church, but the church can be a place that looks a lot like the older brother in this story. And we want to move away from that and begin to look like the father and also allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us about our issues as the, in a sense, the, the youngest son as well. The context of Luke 15 is... Uh, an accusation made against Jesus uh, that he spends too much time with sinners. Pharisees and scribes begin to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So religion, watch this, religion doesn't receive sinners. Sinners can come and be part of religion if they clean up their act first, right? So uh, come on. Cut your hair, get a suit, put a tie on, stop drinking, change your sexual ethic, uh, get out of debt, deal with all your addictions, everybody's welcome. Really? Uh, we got to change that paradigm a little bit by looking at this story. And there's, So we want to look at all three characters, and that's basically the outline. We're going to look at the father, then the younger son, then the older son. Let's begin by looking at the father. And so uh, in uh, verse 11... A man had two sons. The younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. This is like unheard of in the culture. You would want your share of the inheritance before you die. Like, probably hasn't happened to you either, I'm guessing, if you're a parent. And probably if you're not yet at that point where you have inheritance to give away to your three-year-old, you haven't gone to your older parents, or your parents, and said, hey, I want it now. I want all my money now. Who does that, right? Well, the younger son does that. And uh, what's interesting regarding the father is this. Father's like this. No way. Wait. No. Unheard of, even more than asking, is the father's response. Oh, you want your inheritance now? Here. Take it. All right, I kind of liquidate all my assets and give you the inheritance that you 
don't really deserve now. I'm going to give it to you now. So the first thing to see here, if you're filling in the blanks, the father dignifies his children with freedom. Uh, he knows, the father knows, that love can't be mandated or bought. If it's going to be a love relationship, it has to be freely chosen. In other words, imagine if you're, if you're a father, imagine saying this. Look, this is a great house to live in, and, you know, you, you, can, you can have use of all the resources here in this house as long as you obey me. If you obey me, things are going to go swimmingly for you. But if you disobey me, boom, I'm going to kick you out. You're going to be on the streets. There's going to be hell to pay. Is it, what kind of relationship is that? Well, I want you to know that's not the relationship we have with God. God, like people ask the question, why is there suffering in the world? The reason there's suffering in the world is because a love relationship by its very definition is it's a, it's a chosen relationship, right? So if it's going to be love, it has to be freely received and freely and unconditionally given. Imagine in your wedding vows uh, saying, yeah, you know, I will love you and honor you, sickness, health, richer, poorer, better, worse, as long as you obey me. But if not, boom, there's going to be consequences. That's not love. There's a movie long, long ago called The Stepford Wives, where these wives are like these perfect robot wives that every man ostensibly wanted, but they, they, weren't, they had no free will. Without free will to love, it's not love. That's what you need to see. So the father dignifies his children with freedom. Second thing, when the son leaves, the father doesn't, you know, send out a posse to lasso him and bring him back. Second little blank in your outline, the father is willing to wait for his son to come home. Now, as you get older, maybe in the room, you get married, and then you have kids, and when your kids are young, they lay on the trampoline with you in the backyard, and they look up at the clouds, and they call the clouds, you know, Winnie the Pooh and, and Mickey Mouse, and they're totally innocent, and they don't know about 9-11, and they don't know about politics and weapons of mass destruction and racism, and they just put their, you know, their head on your lap, and they say, Dad, I'm never getting married. I'm going to live with you forever. But I want to tell you, uh, as an older guy, that doesn't happen, actually. They don't live with you forever. For better and worse, you know, they go off and they build their own lives, and that's all good and appropriate and well. But they don't always go off uh, and make wise choices, necessarily. Anyone who's a parent knows that. And when, look, if you're a parent in the room and your kids are out, you know, living in the, quote-unquote, quote what we call the far country, and they're, they're just making terrible choices, take a cue here from this father. He's willing to wait. I can't tell you how many times over the 40 years I've been in ministry, I've had pastoral conversations with people who are concerned about their kids. And the reason they're concerned is because their kids are a reflection of their own, you know, well-being and ego. And so if my kids perform well, that, that go, plays well for me. And I get to, not literally, but I kind of parade my kids out. Look at them, you know, Harvard, MBA, you know, business school, 4.0. Even 3.9 is worthy of praise. So, you know, wow, look at my kids. You know, no drugs, no this, you know, running track, all good. Are my kids great? But then the subtext of that conversation is if they're not so great, I, gotta, I have to fix my kids. I'm just going to tell you, no, you don't. In this text, the father waits. And you'll see why he waits 
in a little bit here. But just carry this away. I don't need to impose consequences that will automatically be imposed by the way the world works. So the Father's willing to wait. We'll come back to that when we look at the Son. Then what we see here is the Father wants a love relationship more than anything. That's the third observation regarding the Father. Because he wants a love relationship, that's why he doesn't force him to come home. That's why he doesn't impose consequences so the son will say, oh man, dad is so mad at me, I better come home. He, he just lets, he kind of lets him go, right? And then not only does he will let him go, but he apparently has this kind of confidence that in the son making terrible decisions, someday he's going to come to his senses. So he's looking. He's kind of confidently waiting for the son to return, which is amazing to me, right? Like, we don't know how long he waits, but he waits. And he's looking. And then when he sees the son returning, the text says the father runs to meet the son. Like, he doesn't wait for him. Like, I'm going to sit here in my rocking chair and, you know, prepare my corrective speech. He runs to the son, eager, eager for reconciliation. And when the older brother, who stayed home the whole time, gets mad at dad for throwing a party for the younger son, he also exhorts the younger son, man, come to the party. Don't miss it. This is all, for all three parties, this is about lavish, unconditional, transformative, grace-filled love. It's all about love. And the Father represents that, right? So it's really, really important that we see Father, dignified, show of freedom, willing to wait, wants a love relationship more than anything. Now, what about the younger son? This is really, really important, this first observation. The younger son wants, if you are filling in blanks, he wants the riches without the relationship. And the reason this is so important is this is so reflective of many of us in our humanity. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate that falls to me. So the father divided his wealth between them. And then the younger son gathered everything, took the riches that he now has, and he went on a, a journey to a distant country and there squandered his estate with loose living. So um, what's interesting here is wanting the riches without the relationship. Now, I, I find this interesting and I go back in my mind to when my children are young and and my kids would come to me at a Mariner game and want to buy like Dippin' Dots or a hot dog or whatever they wanted to buy. And like, we weren't wealthy, but I wanted to give them money. But I also have to say to you, like a confession a little bit secretly, I was like, look, this is not about Dippin' Dots. This is not about a hot dog. This isn't really even ultimately about baseball. This is about relationship, right? And so I'm kind of this, and I have this holier-than-thou kind of, hey, come on, kids, grow up and just realize, have a little gratitude. You know, here we are. We're in a kingdom. We're the 200 seats, not the 300 seats. Cost a little extra money. The front row. Game is in an extra inning, so you're getting a bonus. How about a little, how about a little gratitude? This is when we lived up in the mountains, right, uh, you know, 100 miles from here. We stayed to the end of the game, like, at midnight. It was like a 17-inning game. 
and drove home. Because for me, you know, I thought, I said it's about relationships. And then a foul ball comes in proximity of me and you, and you, an old woman, grab the foul ball and give me this evil eye, and I'm so mad at you now that I'm not paying attention to the game. And I'm replaying in my, in my mind now all the foul balls that I never, to this day, have never received a foul ball, ever. The best seats in the house that people give me, these season tickets, no foul ball, right? Kansas City Park, no foul ball. Boston, no foul ball. New York, no foul ball. No foul ball, ever, none, none. And now there's one within a foot, and I'm so mad. And then I'm like this, oh, wait a minute, you just said to your kids, it's about relationship. Not really. Like for all of us, there's a tendency to think satisfaction comes from acquisition. Hello? It doesn't. And, you know, in Romans 1, kind of the great judgment on humanity is this. Look, God has created the world, and it's a rich world, man. It's, it's, there's water, and there's sunshine, and there's seasons, and flowers grow, and wheat grows, and cattle eat wheat, and you ate a steak, or if you're veg vegetarian, the wheat grows and you eat bread, whatever. It's all good. It's all good. But look what God has provided. God's given you everything. And why is God giving you everything? So that you can enjoy being in this kind of family and worship the creator. And the, and the, the judgment of Romans 1 is this. We worship the, the, the creation rather than the creator. And we're like, we love the stuff. We love the water. We love the air. We love every breath we take. We, we, love that what we, we love what we've created as a result of all this abundance. We love the rare earth minerals that's enabled us to create, you know, these marvelous little gadgets, these phones that now give us 24-7 access to the whole world. We love that. We, we, we love the wealth. We love the comfort. We love the, we love the sexual intimacy. We love the, the food. We love the wine. We, we love it all. Bring it on, man. That's why I want that life. We want... We want the riches without the relationship. And in, in Romans 1, it says, why don't you just give thanks? Because if, if you lived in relationship, you would know a different kind of abundance. But as it is, you're, in the, you're kind of in the far country, you're squandering and you're seeking, actively seeking the riches without the relationship. There's a best-selling book entitled Stealing Fire that's about finding kind of the flow state. If some of you who are in business or other realms know, like that zone where you, you know, you're working and it's super creative and time seems to stop and you can produce a ton of work in a few hours and uh, you're completely focused and there's no anxiety and your heart rate variability is up and your pulse is down and your blood pressure is down and it's this kind of beautiful state and stealing fire offers this thesis that uh, that flow state is available to you and you don't need the Holy Spirit. And you don't need an identity rooted and grounded in love. And, and you don't need a relationship with your creator. And you don't need any worship. You can get it simply through kind of raw meditation and, and, and mushrooms and spectacular sex and your aura ring. And if you just do it right, you can have all the benefits of a walk with God without God. It's a bestseller. Look, <laughs> 
Riches, no problem. But hear me, God is not a store. And so for us in the room, if we only come to God when like our cup is empty, that's a problem. Because we're not made to view God as just the one who fills our cup. Thanks for the dipping dots, Dad. Off I go. So then I want to go on and say this. God has made the world in a beautiful way. We reap what we sow. So why doesn't the Father reel the Son in? He doesn't need to. He knows that the Son will bear the consequences of his own choices. Look at verses 13 to 15. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, went on a journey to a distant country, and squandered his estate with loose living. And when he spent everything, then there was a severe famine in the country, and he began to be impoverished. So here's the son. He's not, you know, leveraging his estate. He's squandering his estate. And then, um, get this, there's a famine because the entire West Coast has been in a drought for, uh, you know, 20 years now that exceeds anything in 800 years. And so, and then uh, suddenly it's impossible for grain to leave Ukraine and suddenly there's a food shortage as well. Oh, and then by the way, there's inflation. And, and, then, the, and then the market drops. And so even if I did invest by estate in stocks, now they're not worth as much anymore. And pretty soon I go from a place of feeling abundance to a place of need. And everybody who loved me when I was out, you know, buying drinks on the house, nobody loves me anymore because I can't buy drinks in the house. I don't have anything anymore. So suddenly, it says this, uh, he'd spent everything, and a severe famine occurred, and he began to be impoverished. God knows that eventually, if we live in a way that, that is cut off from God, only wanting the gifts of God, not relationship. God knows this. Look, you want to go and live as if I don't exist? Go! That's the judgment. I'm not going to throw thunderbolts at you. I'm not going to impose judgment on you. If you want to live as if there's no God, here's the judgment. Go live as if there's no God. You want to be the master of your own ship? Here's the judgment. Congratulations, you're master of your own ship. You want to run your own show? Run your own show. In other words, God's judgment is this. If I want to live as if there is no God, then like like it's a wonderful life, (laughs) behold, there is no God. Now you make your own choices. And he did. And then, like some voice inside of him, a voice of reason, said, how's that working out for you? And he came to his senses. So in Romans 1, it just says this. When we refuse to worship and live in relationship, God gives us up and says, okay, then if you're rejecting relationship, then go live. And and then we fill in the blank and void of relationship with materialism and individualism and consumerism because God has said, if you, if you want to live as if I don't exist, just consuming my gifts without relationship, <clears throat> the judgment is this, you get to live as if I don't exist. And you get exactly what you want. And if what you want is to be cut off from me, you will be cut off from me. But ultimately, eventually, you'll see that Ecclesiastes 1 is true. Your attempt to live a full life without relationship is impossible. Because the gift that is there will disappear and disappear and disappear. Nothing lasts. Consume however you want. And this, you know, we can look at this younger brother in a sense as a picture of all of humanity. 
And that's what essentially what Romans 1 does. When we collectively consume all the riches that is our earth, we experience resource wars and, and colonialism and pollution and child labor and soil deflation and diseases of civilization and climate change and race and suicide and gun violence and addiction and human trafficking. And the list just goes on and on. And God is kind of saying to us, hey, please, hello, wake up. How's it working for you? Living as if there is no God. How are you doing? Are you nailing it? And the answer is obvious. If we'll just pay attention, the answer is obvious. And I could go on, but you get the picture. God lets us go because Galatians 4, don't be deceived. God is unmocked. Whatever we sow, we reap. I mean, maybe it's five or six. I don't know. It's in Galatians, the second half. But, but, we, but we reap what we sow. And if you sow autonomy, then you get to reap the fruits of you being the captain of your own ship, and you were never designed to be captain of your own ship, ever. So that's the observation. You know, God, God lets us go, but then the, the, the younger son wants the riches without the relationship. And then God has made the world in a beautiful way. We reap what we sow. And then finally, the younger son in verses 17 to 19 knows he'd be better off in his family. Quote, unquote, he comes to his senses, right? He doesn't plan on being accepted back fully because his image of the father is kind of culturally constructed. And in every world in which we live in, we understand that love is kind of conditional, right? In other words, in his brain, God couldn't possibly be loving of me because God would only love people who love him back. And I, I didn't love him. I rejected him. And so because I failed to love, he won't love me. I'll come back as a, and I'll offer to be a slave. This is in the human heart, right? As soon as we fail, kind of shame enters in and, and we run away from God. It goes all the way back to Genesis 2, where uh, when Adam and Eve failed, they didn't run toward God. As soon as they heard the voice of God, what does Adam say? I was afraid, so I went and hid. Why was he afraid? Because I didn't do what you asked. So I didn't love you, and now I'm afraid because if I don't love you, then I know you don't love me. Because in this world, we only love those who love us. So he's presuming the way of our world and imposing the way of our, of our world on his dad. I know when I broke the big picture window with a baseball as a sixth grader, and my dad walked through the door, and the ball is still spinning in the glass, and I can't even lie my way out of it. I, like I, At that moment, by instinct, I ran into my room, I locked the door, and I fell on my bed, you know, and I was crying. I covered my head with a pillow, and my dad came knocking, and he said, open the door. And I said, no, go away. Like, I knew he was going to kill me, except he didn't. So we have to see here, the son came to his senses, and he comes back, but his, but his view of the father is not yet uh, uh, fully formed. And then in verses 20 and 21, his speaking is a form of confession, because this is what he says. He, he got up and he said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm not worthy to be called your son. 
Now, the father's answer, we'll get to in a minute, but this is the form of confession. He knows that what he's done has not only been contrary to the love of the father, but contrary to the way the world is supposed to work. The dad here represents perfect love, right? Which none of us have given to our kids, but the dad represents perfect love. And the point is to see that our, our creator's design for us is that we live in love. And how do we live in love? We first must receive it. And then as the scriptures say, right, we love because what? He first loved us. We don't love because we work it up. We don't love because we're inherently loving. We must first receive the love so that we can then, you know, give the love. So his declaration, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, is met with this. The father says to the servants, hey, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fatted calf, kill it, let us eat, let us celebrate. He was dead, he's alive, he was lost, he's found. And they, the servants and the son and the father, began to celebrate. Why? Because, the, watch this, the younger son was always still a son, always. He didn't forfeit sonship by running away. All the father wanted was all the son needed, which was to come home. Has he blown it? Yes. Has he squandered resources? Yes. Has he made terrible choices? Yes. Has he hurt people beyond his own family along the way? Yes. Has he hurt his family? Yes. But none of that changes the reality that God's love is for us unconditional. I'm just not sure we believe it. Come to Jesus, we say. Come as you are. Oh, except, you know, make sure you wear a tie to church and a, and a, and a suit and get out of debt. And we don't want to see you, you know, deal with your addictions, fix your marriage, fix your life. Come. Like, we never say that. But I wonder if that isn't how we're perceived sometimes, right? Someone came here on Easter of many years ago now. They came to this service. They said, I came in, I had to leave. It's so creepy. I said, what do you mean? I said, everyone's so beautiful and perfect. I go, oh, you don't know them. <laughs> like, everybody has a story. Everybody has stuff under the carpet. Everybody has a little garbage that they're dealing with. Everybody has a little bit of dysfunction. What, what sets the community of faith apart isn't that we're well healed. shouldn't be anyway. It's that we've come home. And just allowed ourselves to be bathed in the transforming, indeed transforming power of the love of Christ. So what matters more than anything for the younger son is he wants to be home. And he discovers that he's always been a son in the eyes of a loving father. Now, people challenge me right here. They go, yeah, 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 but have you ever heard this? Love the sinner, hate the sin. Yeah, but you got it. At some point, you got to obey. I hear you. And yes, the whole point here is, is that we ultimately look like Jesus, right? And that's going to require of all of us movement and transformation. But, man, if you hear nothing else, 
hear me this morning, like, remember Monopoly? Like, isn't the first square called Go or something like that? I don't know what it is. Do not pass Go. Like, okay, what's the first square here? The first square is this. You are loved. Boom. This is why, it, I think this is why it says we have to become like little children if we're going to receive the kingdom of God. Because when a child is born, something like this, child doesn't come out of the womb with, uh, hey, how much is the hospital bill and how can I help? Like, that is just not the first question they ever ask. Like, like we're born into this world in abject dependency on the ones who gave birth. And here's God saying to you, I've given, I've given you the gift of your humanity, but unless you become as a child, you'll never receive the kingdom of God. How do, how do children receive? I'll tell you how. Hey, Dad, Dippin' Dots. You know, and a little younger, hey, Dad, clothes. And a little younger, hey, Mom, change the diapers. <laughs> hey, need a meal. Need another meal. Need another meal. Well, when was the last time you cooked around here? You know? Come on. It's grace. That's our reference point. And if we, if, if that's not square one in your relationship with God, you're missing something, friends. There's a whole board, but square one is your child receiving. Finally, we've got to look at the older son. And this bleeds well into the older son. He's out working in the field. So unlike the Rembrandt picture you've been seeing, uh, the whole reconciliation scene in reality has already happened, right? So in Rembrandt, he, the son is sitting there watching. The, the, the older son is watching the younger son confess. In fact, he's out in the field. He comes home. And it's like it would be like driving into your neighborhood, and you can hear, oh, there's a block party going on, right? Streets closed. There's smoke from the barbecue. You smell the brats. There's music playing. There's people in the streets, and you're like, whoa, there's a party. What's this about? And then you realize, oh, the party is for my brother who wasted his entire inheritance while I stayed home. Now, just for a minute here, live into this story as if you're the older son. You did the right thing. He did the wrong thing. You stayed home. He took the inheritance. You believe obedience has his rewards. The dad owes you somehow. And you believe that the one who fails to love isn't worthy of love. That's what you believe. You've been working all day, all week, all month, all year, years. You've had no party. You know what this is? This is what I call transactional Christianity. It's, hey, God, I will obey you, but I want it to be cancer-free. I will obey you, but I want, I want all the perks, man. I want all the rewards. If I'm not in the flow state 24-7, baby, I'm out of here. Because I, look, I'm not, I'm not in this because I love you. I'm in this for what I can get from you. And if that's the mindset, hello, you also have left home. Even though you never left home, you're gone. Why? Because home, as Billy Joel or someone sang, home is where this love relationship is. You're my home. You are my home. Not Seattle. Not Bethany. Not upward mobility. Not perfect health. Not, you know, obedience for blessing. 
You, Christ, are my home. His bitterness is on display. His judgment is on display. And by the way, if the older son is right, then it is a performance-based world. And if he's right, then he has every right to be mad. But he's not right. So, just want to conclude this way. In 1 John, we're told this, we love because he first loved us. So I need to receive that love because Jesus said it this way regarding the disciples, freely you have received, freely give. In other words, we're sitting here this morning and we're asking, I hope, in what ways am I like the younger son? I'm living with kind of lawlessness and indulgence. In what ways am I like the older son where I'm living with, you know, pride and self-righteousness and judgmentalism? But how are we, good, ask those questions. They're important, but they're only important so that we can receive this love because once we receive it, freely having received, we can what? Freely give. And when we give, we become like the Father. And that's the church's calling, to be the Father. Freely offering lavish, infinite, irrevocable, unconditional love to whoever not only comes through the door, but whoever lives in this city, whoever we encounter at the grocery store, whoever we encounter in traffic, everyone worthy of love. Why? Because 1 John 3 says this, he himself, Christ, is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins, not our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. Boom. God's not mad at anyone. So why are you? So we, have, we learn to receive, and then once we receive Monday night here at Kids Club, my grandkids came up, and it was a water-themed kids' summer adventure thing. So they came up and soaked me with squirt cannons, you know. And then I had the privilege of giving a little sermon, and I said, John 7, what did Jesus say? Anybody thirsty? Come to me in relationship. And what do I do? I'll so fill your cup that you now are able to. And then I took the gun and filled with water. Squirt of the And everybody's laughing and cheering. Yeah, that's what we want. We want to give. That's not square one. That's square two. Square one is receiving. So, you know, we're going to have a song here. And I want you to, I'm going to invite you to come and write in the books. I'm the younger son in that. And then just offer a prayer. Or maybe God has laid it on your heart. I'm the older son in that, and then offer a prayer. I want to be the father for, and then offer a prayer for a name or something. But let's, let's make this moment of response a moment of prayer so that God is you know, free to speak to our hearts so that we can both freely receive and freely give. Jesus, would you meet us now as we turn to you? We pray that you would speak to each one of us of the manner in which we've pursued kind of lawlessness like the young son, kind of gone our own way, legalism like the older son, wooden obedience that makes us self-righteous and proud, in order that we might become the Father, loving everyone that we encounter, because everyone is in the far country needing to come. Take us there, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. The books are here for you to respond in prayer, and uh, let's worship together. <laughs>